With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No True Crime Odyssey deals with violent and often disturbing crimes committed against men, women, and children. These stories are not suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is strongly advised. That's when the cannibalism started, eating of the heart and uh, the arm muscle. It was a way of uh, making me feel that uh, they were a part of me. I believe in the, in the evil in human nature. This is a wicked, wicked world. And uh, in a wicked world, you, you, wicked people are born. I'm not gonna blame society, my race, and people or anything. Uh, it is up to the individual like myself to, to keep on knocking on, on whatever door they want to get into. Hey everyone and welcome back to True Crime Odyssey. Thanks so much for joining us for the show. Before we get started with this week's case, as always, if you haven't done so, please take a second to rate and review the show wherever you're listening to the podcast. It goes a long way in helping other people find the show. And if you don't already do so, please make sure you follow us on Instagram at True Crime Odyssey. Make sure you head over to the website, ParanormalWorldProductions.com. Check out the True Crime Odyssey blog at the top of the page to see all the show-related photos and all the source materials for this week's episode and all of our other episodes. I do want to take just a couple of seconds to acknowledge the fact that I did not put out a regular show last week. We had an intruder on the property. If you listen to that, I gave a brief description of what's going on last week. So I really appreciate you guys coming back. 
we've got all of our security measures back up and we've got more cameras up so we should be good here hopefully but i really wanted to thank you guys for coming back and sticking with us but enough of that i know you're here for the true crime so let's get into this week's case I have received several emails from many of you that have asked me to cover this particular serial killer. I actually became familiar with him for the first time when I was watching the Netflix show Mindhunter. So after that, I started doing some research and I decided to go ahead and cover him on the show. This is going to be at least two parts. So today is part one and next week will be part two. There may be a part three. I just don't know yet. So stick around for that. But here in part one, we get into the background, his early life, and him spending some time in a mental hospital after he committed his first two murders. He gave an extended interview in 1991, so I'm using a lot of audio from that, so you get to hear from him in his own words. And we don't always get that with these serial killers. Many of them don't do a ton of interviews and they don't like talking about their crimes because most of them deny that they ever killed anybody. So when there is audio of these people talking about their crimes in their own words, I am certainly going to use it. So without further ado, let's get into tonight's case. This is the story of the life and crimes of the co-ed killer, Ed Kemper. Edmund Emil Kemper III was born on December 18, 1948 in Burbank, California to his parents Edmund and Clarinell Kemper. Edward, as he was called, was the middle child and had one older and one younger sister. His father served in the military during World War II and was part of the American Allied Forces Suicide Squadron. After the war, Edmund worked at the nuclear testing facility at the Pacific Proving Grounds. The family eventually made their way to California, where he found work as an electrician. Clarinelle Kemper was a strong-willed woman, and she had a huge personality. She often complained about Edmund's lack of ambition and his willingness to accept mediocrity in most areas of his life. This included his job as an electrician, which she considered to be a menial job. Edmund often said that his work in the testing of nuclear weapons, as well as his many suicide missions during the war, were nothing compared to his volatile marriage to Clarinelle. It was clear almost immediately that Edward was different from other children. He weighed a whopping 13 pounds when he was born, and by the time he started kindergarten, he was more than a head taller than the rest of his classmates. But it wasn't just his size that set him apart from the other children. Edward was very close to his father, but his relationship with his mother was anything but healthy. He was devastated when his parents divorced in 1957. With his father gone, Ed was left with his neurotic, alcoholic, and domineering mother. After the divorce, it became clear that Edward had a dark side that manifested itself in the early years as antisocial behavior. At around age 10, he began to torture insects and animals. At one point, he buried the family cat alive, dug it up once it was dead, and then decapitated it. At around the age of 13, he killed another family cat when he suspected that it liked his younger sister more than it liked him. In addition to the killing of animals, Kemper began to act out other dark fantasies, performing rites and rituals with his sister's dolls that included removing their hands and heads. His older sister Susan often teased him about why he never tried to kiss his teacher in school, to which Ed replied, If I kiss her, I'd have to kill her first. 
Kemper would later recall sneaking out of the house with his father's bayonet to sit outside his second grade teacher's home to watch her through a window. He also spoke in later interviews about playing some rather disturbing childhood games. Two of his favorites being the gas chamber and the electric chair. These involved his younger sister and a friend tying him up and flipping an imaginary switch, acting as his executioner. Edward would in turn play his part, rolling around on the ground pretending to be dying from the electric shock or from inhaling the imaginary gas. There were a couple of times that Kemper came very close to real death as a child, both incidents coming at the hands of his older sister. Once she attempted to push him in the path of an oncoming train, and the other when she pushed him into a swimming pool where he almost drowned. As if living with an older sister that seemed to want him dead wasn't enough, Kemper's true issues were with his mother. She seemed to derive great pleasure in humiliating him, and she was constantly ridiculing him for his abnormally large size. Kemper once overheard his mother mocking him and making fun of his size when he was eavesdropping on a conversation she was having on the phone with his father. She would often lock him in the basement out of fear that he would harm his sisters. Edward, who was six feet four inches tall at the age of 15, certainly was an imposing figure, and his mother felt that if he wanted to harm any of them, they would be physically unable to stop him because of his sheer size and his strength. In addition to the constant physical, emotional, and psychological abuse, his mother also withheld any physical affection towards Ed because she feared that it would, quote, turn him gay. Kemper would often refer to his mother as a sick woman, and he has said that even though she was never officially diagnosed, she may have suffered from borderline personality disorder. From my point of view, what I saw was there was a great hole in my life. There was a lot missing from my life, and it didn't necessarily mean feelings. It meant I had walled off this, this emptiness in my life, okay? I had an upbringing that was, uh, some have called, uh, dysfunctional, okay? parents divorced when I was young. My mother started drinking heavily. Uh, she was working to raise three kids. We were not being cooperative about it. She drank more. She punished us harder, uh, probably out of desperation. Uh, so s character sets were being developed at that point. Rather than me going to Boy Scouts and getting achievement badges, I was not going to Boy Scouts and not getting achievement badges. I was finding devious ways to get around the rules of the home. Because the whole home life, just I watched it deteriorate from what typical kids on the block were doing to coming home from school that I didn't like anyway. And ironically, I have a high IQ. I didn't know that till I was locked up the first time for murder. I always thought I was a little missing up here, a little short. Uh, because I was always called stupid, I was called slow, don't you think when you do things. That was the problem. I wasn't thinking when I did things. I just did by rote, I did by memory, I did by example. And I had absolutely no faith in myself at all. I had no interaction going on in my own mind. I was not a thinker. I was not an individual. I had a teacher in the ninth grade who changed all that. He made me think. He would not tolerate my not thinking. He was an art teacher. And it was a devastating experience for me because there were gears in my head that were just rusty and they were barely moving or not at all. And that's when I found out that's what the state of my mind's functioning was. I didn't think. To the point of, he points at a stapler on his desk and says, what does that say? And I looked at it and I said, silver line. He says, look again. And he's, he's raving at me. And I look and it said swing line. All I had to do was look at it and read it. But I glanced at it and threw it back at him out of panic. So he made me think, 
and he gave me puzzles to work out in school in my class where I had to resolve these to continue on with the class. I had to think. I had to use abstracts. And after that started, that became fascinating to me, so I got more and more involved in thinking and about my surroundings and things like that. But by then I was locked up. But what was your relationship with your sister? Which one? I have uh, two. Yes, the one you you were sp playing strange games of death with her, with one my of your sisters. My younger sister, yeah. My older sister was five years older than me, so she was off with her friends and in a distant relationship. My younger sister's two years younger, and I developed some morbid games. My life had started going that way at about eight. Uh, we lived in a house where there was a basement. Uh, some people think there was a trap door on that basement. That's not so. That was a different house. It was a walk-in basement, but it was a, in Montana. It was a full basement. It had granite walls, uh, hewn wood floorboards, and it looked like some old dungeon or out of a castle or something. I was eight years old, seven and a half, eight years old, and then I was very susceptible. My imagination was very livid. And there was an old furnace in the basement that had been converted from uh, burning coal to burning and coal and wood to burning gas. And that was, it had a central heating system with uh, re, uh, your typical radiators. And if you've ever lived in a home like that, you know, you know the binging, the clang, the pop, the, the rattles, the weird sounds in the night that can be spooky to a kid. Well, at a certain time of the evening, the family left the center room, the, the living room of the house. My mother and my sisters, or my sisters themselves, would go up to bed upstairs, where I used to go to bed, upstairs. I had to go down to the basement. And an eight-year-old child had a tough time differentiating the reason in that. Why am I going to the basement? I'm going to hell, they're going to heaven. Earth is the living room. I'm going down to deal with demons and monsters and ghosts and all the things that scare me. They don't have to. There's a house with three women and one male, one boy, me. And uh, I got a little defensive. I'm saying, gee, this is kind of ganging up. My older sister had had a basement bedroom, okay? And it was a storage room that was uh, about 18 feet wide and 35 feet long, okay? And it was a concrete room, no windows. And it had a light bulb over a big industrial iron sink, you know, like a laundry sink, and it had a pull string on the light. The bed was in the opposite corner of the room. It was a double bed, or a single bed. And um, I had a dresser halfway. I had a couple of carpets thrown on the floor, old carpets, and there's a lot of storage stuff along the wall. And uh, I was there about six months in that room. And I developed some very, very uh, particular and articulate um, rituals that I felt I had to go through to protect myself. I was like, again, it's embarrassing. I was a youngster. and. If you can imagine me going down a staircase of rough hewn wood, there's no guardrail. So one step wrong and you're off into this black pit. I turn on the light, it's a little circular light switch. And a single naked bulb goes on down at the bottom of these stairs, okay? So I turn that light on, I open the door, I close the door because my mother complains of the cold coming in from the basement. I go down the stairs, I get to the bottom, I do a 180 degree turn and I walk the full length of the house on this floor with these pipes rattling and wheezing and banging over my head. It's pitch black ahead of me and the only light is behind me hanging down from the ceiling. I'm now cut off from the house, cut off from them. 
I walked this full length into the darkness from this gradients of light into complete darkness, groping around in the dark. I, I do about a 45 degree angle when I get to the end. And I pull the string and it lights up this end. And then I'm supposed to walk all the way back to the other end, turn that light off, and now walk toward the light from the dark. And I've got this horrible terror going on inside of me. And this is every night, this is every day, because it's pitch black down there, no windows. She didn't intend all of this. And when I sniveled about it, when I complained and I cried about it, I got smacked in the head. You know, what's the matter with you? Quit being such a wimp. And she, you know, she was trying to solve a problem. She had uh, not enough room upstairs to where I didn't have to share a bedroom with a sister. I'm eight years old. I need to go to the basement. And what were the, those morbid games that you played with your sister? Stay tuned for more True Crime Odyssey. We'll be right back after these messages. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Well, the one I remember uh, someone talking about in a, in a book was one that was playing gas chamber or electric chair or something. And we had this big old overstuffed chair up in my room. And we'd, we'd uh, it was not just my sister and I, it was my sister and I and a friend, a close friend. We got into all these games. We got into one game where we'd roll up in a rug and a person who would try to get out of it is just like a large throw rug. And it was, uh, I guess, what fascinated us individually about it is it was a completely, uh, it broke up the monotony, I guess, of what we were doing. Didn't have a lot of toys to play with. Uh, we got bored with those pretty quickly. So we looked for things to do. You roll up in the rug and, and you try to get out and the other two would leave the room and we see who could get out fastest. You know, you try to work your way out sideways or scoot out the end of it or whatever. And uh, it went from that to being tied in this overstuffed chair with a cord or something or, or pieces of sheet or sash or something. And uh, it went through this process. I guess we're, that's back when, in 1960 when uh, Carol Chessman was executed down in California. We're up in Montana. And so I got, uh, there's a lot of media coverage on that because he was an author, he'd written books, they're trying to save his life, he'd not killed anybody, why are they executing him? And um, so that's, I think, where the fascination with that came in, that gas chamber effect. 
but and I think it overly fascinated some people in relation to this case because it seems so obvious a piece, you know. I'm preparing my mindset for doing deathly kind of things. Another obvious piece would actually be, uh, I don't know if the story is true, that you beheaded uh, one of the, the, your sister's doll and cut off uh, the hands of the doll. It's interesting you bring that up. I had a cap gun. It was uh, by Mattel, right? Fanner 50, it was a very fancy cap gun. I got it in New York City. I went there for one summer with a cousin. And when I came back, my sister was kind of jealous, my little sister. For years, I never really put any value on what happened. Tried to, you know, figure out beyond the obvious what happened in this scenario. But she, I've since found it plausible to believe that when she was angry or jealous about something, she would fuel her attitude toward resolving something. She hated that cap gun because it came between us as brother and sister. It was something I had that she didn't have. Uh, that trip represented something she really wanted and she didn't get, and I did. Uh, but very soon after getting back from that trip, she got in an argument with me. It was over something really petty. She got really outraged. She picked up that cap pistol. I said, don't throw that. And she threw it right at me, wham, hard. It hit the floor and my toe, and it hurt bad. Uh, but it broke the gun, the inner mechanism. It wouldn't work after that. I picked it up, I found that out. It wouldn't cock and pull the trigger anymore. And that really outraged me. So I said, so you want to play like that, huh? So I go running into her room. She says, what are you doing? What are you doing? She's shrieking and chasing me, right? So I run into her room and I grab up her Barbie doll. It was the one fancy doll she had, the Barbie doll. Everybody has one, right? Uh, she had a pair of sewing scissors sitting there and a sewing machine, a sewing kit. I grabbed the scissors out. The head didn't decapitate, it pops off. So I popped that off. I said, well, that's going to go right back on. That's no damage. So I took the scissors and I cut the hands off the doll. I said, here, now you got a toy that doesn't work too good. I got a toy that doesn't work too good. That was my attitude. It wasn't quite just me going and, you know, uh, dismembering her doll. Again, that, I think that's a little bit too quick an assignation. It's not me to judge these professionals, but when they look at me here on Monday morning after the football game and they say, gee, here's all these little parts of the puzzle, oh, this indicates what he was going to do. And if that's the case, I want to know about the teenage kid or the preteen kids and the puberty, the pre and post puberty kids. They're going through these raging moods and attitudes that go out and kill neighborhood cats. They hang them up from a telephone pole or hang them up from a tree, shoot them full of arrows and set fire to them. I was reading about that in Dear Abby. Where are those children today? Are they serial killers? Or are they police chiefs and mayors and, and aldermen and assemblymen? But I'm saying there are periods when kids go through very violent development into, I mean, potentially violent. They break things, they steal things, they lie. They go through these changes, yet I've had these people uh, one or two doctors in particular who I won't go into, who very casually just slapped all these assignations on there and said, well, of course, if you run into a kid that's doing this kind of thing, you've got a developing serial killer, you better put him in treatment real quick and save his life, right? To a point I agree with them, that someone who's acting out and has a dysfunctional childhood or has just gone through a dysfunctional childhood and hasn't gotten violent yet or is heading toward that direction, passive-aggressive, Violence was the last thing I exhibited, and then it was murderous violence. Okay? So, sure, there's a lot of value in getting youngsters like that help. 
to where they can find themselves and they can find value in themselves and they can find value in interacting with others and they, di they go in a different direction than what, than what I did. But to just sit there and casually lay these, it, it's, uh, I guess that bothers my ego, I don't know, that uh, these people have not worked with me year after year. Uh, the, the psychiatrists and psychologists I deal with are in a prison setting. They're there eight hours a day. They have to deal with me every day. If I am their patient and I screw up, they, are, they can kiss their job and goodbye. I mean, they're going to be a lot of hell, a hell on them for not seeing this in advance and saying, oh, we should lock him up. He might be violent, right? And any, any psych out there, any professional out there is going to tell you, I think, that um, if they are going into my mind, into my past, into my feelings, that there's a potential there for acting out or getting uncontrolled or being violent because they're stripping away the veneer of my civilization, they're stripping away the veneer of the, the protections of myself. And there's a lot of things that can come jumping out of there. And then to walk out of that therapy session into this kind of a setting, prison, where it's very violent, it's very uh, aggressive, it, it's, a, it's a distilled kind of uh, medium that uh, you might encounter on a street corner somewhere, the street corner thug, or the street corner punk, or the alleyway where someone is going to take terrible advantage of you or put you in a terrible situation that you may have to be violent to get out of. That's this main line. I mean, that, that's where all these guys go. And I'm gonna walk out of a therapy session where this man has been peeling my mind, so to speak, and getting into my psyche and my soul and finding out what makes me tick or trying to help put me back together or help try to put me together for the first time. And then I'm gonna walk out of that into this medium. That's not very uh, conducive to good health. Kemper did make at least one attempt to escape the abusive environment of his mother's house. When he was 14, he ran away from his house in Montana and made his way to his father's house in Van Nuys, California. He wanted to reconnect with his father and hopefully come to live with him full time. To Ed's surprise, he found that his father had remarried and he had a stepson. That when I was 14 years old, I ran away from my mother. They mentioned that. But if you look at it in the overall picture, why did I run away? I wanted to be with my father. That's a very topical uh, approach to it. I wanted to get away from my mother because I was dreaming, thinking, fantasizing murder all day long. I couldn't get it out of my head. She and I, I couldn't battle with her because I was very intimidated by her. She's six feet tall, she weighs two and a quarter, 225 pounds. She's not a fat woman, she's just this great big woman who I was terrified of. She had uh, verbal capabilities you wouldn't believe. I used to watch her field strip grown men in emotional uh, little contests. And when they get to a point where they wanted to smack her, then she started attacking them on beating women. Oh, slap the woman around, you know. And then she'd toy with them on that. And I'd watch these guys dance around the room having fits, knocking out windows, punch a hole in the door, and stomp off. And she could control people like that. I'm sitting there watching that in awe from the one point of view and in terror from the other. I grew up with this stuff. She did that to my dad when they were always battling before the divorce. I'm not trying to put on her what happened to the girls or to her. But I'm saying there was a lot of psychological involvement there. One time I turned around shrieking and she hit me in the mouth and the little keeper on the clasp flew off, little silver buckle thing. And she smacked me, this thing breaks off on my mouth, right? And she hits me across the face with this belt and says, shut up, the neighbors are gonna think I'm beating you. <laughs> I'm looking at her, what, <laughs> you know? Uh, I'm not supposed to 
cry out, which is a natural reaction to these great red welts that are going on me. I sure I was a little shit. I got rude downstairs. She took me upstairs and beat the hell out of me. I would like to think it was a better part of my character that was resisting this kind of pressure to fit into some mold that she had the image of as being the good little kid. I'll be damned if I'm going to be that good little kid. I'm getting the hell beat out of me for not being that little kid. I got, re I, got uh, I don't know what you call it, resistant to it. But again, it's not in manly ways or in prideful ways. It was sneaky, little devious ways. I'd get around that. And one of the ways was she won't give me an allowance. I'll take money out of her purse. I never robbed her, took all of it. I'd take a dime here, a quarter there, 15 cents there, 50 cents here. She comes in drunk at night. I she's not going to know how much change she has. So to, re to rebound on that, she started counting her money at all kinds of odd times to keep on top of me. And she, it was like a game we played for years. At the age of 13, she finally lets me go visit my father, okay, down in L.A., where I was born. I'm in Montana, where she was born. I don't like Montana. It's cold in the winter, it's hot in the summer, it's miserable, and the people up there are nice people, but hey, they're not my people. That's what I'm saying now. I wasn't viewing or voicing those things then. I was feeling them, but I didn't know how to put them into words. So I finally get to come down and see my dad again, down in L.A., all right, one month. I never touched her purse again. That scared her. That really bothered her because she had ne she'd beat me halfway senseless with that belt, trying to impress, and, and in terror tactics. Okay, we're gonna eat dinner and I'm gonna beat your ass afterwards, you know, so I can think about it for a half hour. Or after some little thing she's doing. And she tried psychological tactics. She tried, uh, I'm gonna put you in an orphanage, I'm gonna disavow you, and none of that shit worked. So I go see my dad for 30 days. And my stepbrother and I, we go out and mow lawns. We say, gee, Dad, co you know, you're going out to dinner tonight. Can we go someplace and eat? And he says, sure. He'd give us a few dollars. We'd go down to some little diner down the street. He treated us like little men, like he wanted to be treated by his. He came from a matriarchal household, too. I guess if you know how that stuff runs in families, right? Matriarchal household, the son goes out and finds a mother image and marries her. I didn't know all this stuff back then. It would have made a lot more sense. Right? But I got this domineering grandmother on my father's side. I got this uh, domineering grandmother on my mother's side who died before I was born. But now she's reincarnated in my mother and her sister, my aunt. They're two very domineering, very aggressive, very successful women. Okay, so these two women are in terrible conflict with each other, competition, you know. And uh, they didn't get along at all. All right, so I'm in the middle of that, trying to find my, my way. And I go stay with my dad, and he, I, I can only say he reflected back on his childhood and said, gee, I wish I'd been treated this way. So that's how he treated me and my stepbrother. And we responded to that. We'd go, if we needed spending money, we would go out and we'd do tasks around the neighborhood, clean yards, rake this, mow that, water the flowers, and make a few dollars, and we'd have some fun. Okay, and then um, sometimes he'd ask us to do something. We'd do it because he was always fair with us and kind and he was generous with us. So 30, 30 days of doing this opened up whole new feelings in me that I'd never had before. And I wish I'd had more experience with my father growing up so I could orient more to being tall around not tall peers. There was a, a I, I call it an artificial paranoia that developed. Why I walk into a room, everybody stops and looks at me because I'm the tallest guy they've seen or the tallest guy in the room. They stop and they look. And ironically, the average or short guy is sitting over there looking at me with great resentment because he wants that attention. 
I've got it. He thinks it's really neat because he's looking at it from a, uh, a vicarious position. He doesn't realize that there's thorny sides to that attention. I don't want that attention. I want to just blend into the room. I just want to kind of sidle in. So I see two kinds of uh, tall men or tall male or tall female personalities. Those who are very passive because of all of this thrust on them or who are very aggressive and they use that and they apply it towards ends. You know, like the little guy who goes out and becomes the bank president and he's the champion this and did that and never saw the fourth grade. Yeah, because he's real aggressive because he's denied all those little attentions. He has to grab them and he has to go out there and put himself in the limelight. I get it naturally so there's resentment. And little guys tormented me all the time I'm growing up. Did you feel like an outsider, an outcast always. early on? I always felt like an outsider and it's again because I didn't ever fit in. I'd moved around a lot for one thing. I went to different schools when I was in Los Angeles from age, you know, five till seven when I'm going to uh, kindergarten, first grade, second grade. Uh, I got in trouble in public school and I look fondly back on those times because that's when I was acting out and I was normal, you know what I'm saying? I'm not saying I went around and kidnapped people in classrooms or broke windows out. We didn't get into stuff like that, but I was tardy and I was messing around and I was recalcitrant and I was getting bad marks for it. Stay tuned for more True Crime Odyssey. We'll be right back after these messages. And my parents were getting called by the PTA, but you know what? That's a hell of a lot better than a few years later when I'm real spooky and I'm real quiet and nobody ever hears from me and I'm in school and I go home and very few people knew me because I'm in that basement and now I'm pulling into myself and now things are getting very morbid in their orientation. I start becoming fascinated with things evolving around death and destruction and evil and all of that. I'm not saying I became a Satan worshiper because I didn't. I was afraid of evil things afraid of those powers that we all don't understand. And as a little kid, you know, I had a very, very strange orientation to those. I mean, it wasn't rational. What was your, your fantasies at that time, morbid fantasies? At what, about age eight or nine? Or later on when you said you were thinking all the time about death. And... What I was fantasizing about I was building up big loads of frustration inside, big loads of, uh, of hatred because I had no outlet for it. I should have developed outlets, but I didn't know how at that time. So the outlets that developed themselves or I developed without knowing it were fantasies about um, me being the last. I, I got that out of a school book, this thing of being the last person alive on the world. And, and the, the thing that was posed to me in this textbook was, it was uh, social studies. And it was meant to play upon the loneliness youngsters can feel. And that it's a very uncomfortable feeling. And you can't have love and you can't have adventure and you can't have excitement without being able to share it with other people. Because that's where a lot of the dimension comes from. Okay, so they posed this thing at me, well, what if you were the last person in the world and you had all these cars and airplanes and boats and ships and and things to do, but nobody to share it with, right? Um, wouldn't that be awful? And I thought, hey, that's a thought. I never thought of that before. So it became a seed, like a little core to fantasies for me. And some mysterious thing has happened and everybody else is gone and I got all these things I can do and no inhibitions, no restrictions. I can do what I want. I don't get yelled at anymore. Okay, that soon became very hollow. So I built upon that and added to it. Well, people were still around, but they were inanimate. They couldn't affect me. They couldn't hurt me. 
and then it went further and further and further until finally, uh, it, by the time I'm reaching uh, puberty, I'm approaching puberty, and I'm starting to sense myself, and I've already been accosted by a girlfriend, not sexually, physically, but emotionally. She's trying to, you know, she was a little ahead of me. Uh, we're the same age, but she was uh, pretty aggressive, and she's a beautiful young girl. But I wasn't ready for that kind of relationship, and I was scared by it. She kind of cowed me into backing away from the relationship altogether because she wanted to get physical. She wanted to kiss and to neck and to smooch and imitate what she saw in older kids. And that kind of terrified me because I didn't understand the feelings inside. At one point, uh, your sister teased you also about uh, a woman's school teacher, and you said, uh If I wanted to kiss her, I had have to kill her first. Yeah, that had been um, that had been a. Uh, you can imagine how that goes. Uh, the deep dark secrets that one sibling shares with another. It's troubling inside of me. So uh, that was from that that period, that more advanced period where people were still there. They just weren't animate. They could not react or respond to what I was feeling or what I was sharing because what I was sharing was very embarrassing, very humiliating. It's hard to talk about now really because it's uh, obviously it affects uh, how a person feels about himself. But it's not too hard to get around that because then I look at the wreckage I have behind me, the dead people. He did stay with his father for a short time, but he was eventually sent to live with his grandparents on their ranch in the foothills of the Sierra Nevada mountains. Once again, almost immediately, Kemper found himself being ridiculed and emasculated by another overbearing female presence in his life. This time, it came in the form of his grandmother, Maud Kemper. Ed later described his grandfather, Edmund, as senile, and therefore he offered no respite from his grandmother's constant belittling, as she did the same to him. As the arguments continued, the powder keg of emotions were about to explode. On August 27, 1964, Kemper and his grandmother were sitting at the kitchen table when a huge argument broke out. Edward became gripped with rage and he ran out of the room to grab his rifle that his grandfather had given him for hunting. He walked calmly back into the kitchen where his grandmother was still sitting at the table. As Kemper later recalled, his grandmother said to him, Oh, you better not be shooting those birds again. His grandparents had taken the rifle away from him because he was randomly shooting birds and other animals for no reason. Those would be her last words. Kemper shot his grandmother in the head, killing her instantly before shooting her twice more in the back. There are some sources that suggest that several post-mortem stab wounds were also found on Maud's body, but I was unable to confirm this during my research. As his grandfather returned from the grocery store, Edward met him in the driveway where he shot and killed him as he stood next to his car. After the killings, Edward didn't know what to do, so he called his mother and told him that he had just killed both of his grandparents. She phoned the police and they made their way out to the ranch where Kemper was taken into custody without incident. During his questioning after his arrest, Kemper told the authorities that he just wanted to see what it felt like to kill his grandmother. But the only reason he killed his grandfather was because he knew he would be devastated to find out that his wife had been killed and that he would be angry with him because he was the one who had killed her. Because of his age, 15 at the time of the murders, his crimes were deemed incomprehensible for a child to commit. The psychiatrist diagnosed Kemper with paranoid schizophrenia, and he was ultimately sent to the Atascadero State Hospital, a maximum security facility for the criminally insane. During his time at the facility, Kemper was evaluated by numerous psychiatrists and social workers. 
Surprisingly, they all seemed to disagree with the court psychiatrist's diagnosis, with the majority of their reports noting that Kemper showed no interference with thought, no expression of delusions or hallucinations, no flight ideas, and no bizarre thinking. In addition to an apparent lack of mental illness, Kemper was found to possess above-average intelligence as well as being introspective. He was given an IQ test that initially measured him at 136, although a second test sometime later resulted in an even higher score at 145. He was re-diagnosed with a much less severe condition of personality trait disturbance, as well as a passive-aggressive type. The personality disorder is a type of mental disorder in which the person has rigid and unhealthy patterns of thought, functioning, and behavior. The individual may also have trouble perceiving and relating to situations and people. Some common symptoms of personality trait disturbance are extremely high or low self-esteem and the person's inability to form close personal relationships due to their problematic beliefs and behaviors. They may also lack empathy or respect for others and therefore be emotionally detached or overly needy of attention or care. Passive-aggressive types often exhibit resentment and opposition to the demands of others, especially the demands of people in positions of authority. Kemper had an easy-going and even charming personality which he used to endear himself to the staff, doctors, and other inmates. He became the quintessential model inmate. One of the psychiatrists would later say of Kemper that he was an extremely good worker and took great pride in his work. He even went so far to point out that that's not a common trait of a sociopath. On December 18, 1969, when Kemper turned 21, he was released on parole from Atascadero. Despite the urging of the psychiatrist at the hospital, he was released into the custody of his mother. While he was incarcerated, she had remarried and then divorced. Newly single, she lived just a short drive from her job as an administrative assistant at the University of California, Santa Cruz. Despite his troubled past with his mother, Kemper was able to further his progress and convince his psychiatrist that he was fully rehabilitated. On November 20, 1972, his juvenile record was permanently expunged. The last entry into his record from the psychiatrist read, If I were to see this patient without having any history available or getting any history from him, I would think that we were dealing with a very well-adjusted young man who had initiative, intelligence, and who was free from any psychiatric illness. It is my opinion that he has made very excellent response to the years of treatment and rehabilitation, and I would see no psychiatric reason to consider him any danger to himself or any other member of society. And since it may allow him more freedom as an adult to develop his potential, I would consider it reasonable to have a permanent expunction of his juvenile records. After his release, Kemper continued to live with his mother and he began attending community college as a requirement of his parole. He had an interest in law enforcement and he had hoped to become a police officer. At one point, he actually applied to the Santa Cruz Police Department, but he was rejected due to his size. At the time of his release from Atascadero at age 21, Kemper was 6 feet 9 inches tall and weighed more than 250 pounds. But he would often hang out at local spots like the bar called the Jury Room, where Santa Cruz police officers often frequented, and he maintained friendly relationships with many of them. He would later describe himself as a friendly nuisance to the cops, as he would often probe them for information about the missing women that would start to disappear on and around the UCSC campus beginning in the summer of 1972. Kemper bounced around from odd job to odd job before landing a position at the State of California Division of Highways. 
All the while, his relationship with his mother continued to remain volatile and hostile. They argued constantly, and they were often overheard by their neighbors, screaming and yelling at each other. Kemper later spoke about the frequent arguments with his mother, saying, quote, My mother and I started right in on horrendous battles, just horrible battles, violent and vicious. I've never been in such a vicious verbal battle with anyone. It would go to fist with any man, but this was my mother, and I couldn't stand the thought of my mother and I doing these things. She insisted on it, just over stupid things. I remember one roof razor was over whether I should have my teeth cleaned. After obtaining a steady job, Kemper was eventually able to save up enough money to move out of his mother's house and in with a friend in Alameda. But even though he was no longer under the same roof, it seemed that he could not escape her. She would drop in unannounced frequently and call him almost daily. Kemper was not great with money, and his financial struggles would often lead him back to his mother's apartment. The vicious cycle of codependency and dysfunction seemed to be a self-fulfilling prophecy in both of their lives. During his first year of work at the highway division, Kemper was hit by a car while riding his motorcycle. His arm was pretty badly injured during the incident, and he sued the other driver for damages. He was eventually awarded a settlement of $15,000, which is the equivalent of $92,000 today. He used a portion of the money to purchase a 1969 Ford Galaxy. It was during a drive around in his new car that Kemper first noticed the large amount of young women that were hitchhiking in and around the area of the UCSC campus. It was during this time that he began to store knives, blankets, handcuffs, and plastic bags in his car. He also began to pick up some of the women and let them go unharmed. Kemper would later claim that he picked up more than 150 hitchhikers before he began to feel the homicidal and sexual urges that he referred to as the little zapples. Once those feelings began, he gave in for the first time. It was clear there was no going back. He would not stop until he was caught or killed. On May 7, 1972, he was driving around the Berkeley area when he picked up two 18-year-old students from Fresno State University. Mary Ann Pesh and Anita Marie Luchessa were headed up to Stanford University, and Kemper agreed to give them a lift. Unfortunately for the two girls, Kemper had no intentions of taking them to their desired destination. Instead, while he engaged them in conversation, he was able to discreetly change course without them knowing. After driving around for an hour or so, he made it to a secluded area that he was familiar with because of his work at the highway department. Once there, he was able to handcuff Mary and he locked Anita in the trunk of the car. Once she was secure, he began focusing on Mary, stabbing and strangling her to death. He then returned to a terrified Anita still locked in the trunk, where he stabbed and strangled her to death as well. After placing Mary's body in the trunk, he started the drive back to his apartment. Eerily similar to Jeffrey Dahmer after he killed his first victim, and while transporting his corpse, Kemper was stopped by a police officer for a broken taillight. The officer didn't discover the bodies, just inches away in the trunk, and Kemper was allowed to continue on his way. His roommate wasn't home at the time, so Kemper took both the girls' bodies into his apartment. Once inside, he took photos of them and had sex with their corpses before he ultimately dismembered them both. After he cut the bodies into manageable pieces, he placed the pieces into plastic bags, which he later transported and disposed of near the Loma Prieta Mountain. Kemper later admitted that before he disposed of the girls' severed heads in the nearby ravine, he performed irrumatio with both of them. After an extensive search in August of that year, 
Mary's skull was located, but the rest of her remains were never recovered. No trace of Anita's remains were ever found. Please join us next week for part two as we continue our look at the life and crimes of the co-ed killer, Ed Kemper. Thank you.